welcome to the National Archives. My name's Katie Fox and I work in a department called Collections, Expertise and Engagement. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce today's talk, which is dramatically titled Cholera, with an exclamation mark, which is apparently very important, Public Health in Mid-19th Century Britain. Our speaker today is Chris Day, who is our Head of Modern Domestic Records. As well as managing the team, Chris specialises in 19th century public health and home office records. Chris first started working at the National Archives in 2013, when he was cataloguing our vast collection of correspondence which surrounds the 19th century public health and the crisis that was going on in England and Wales. Luckily for us, the really quite vivid descriptions of sanitary conditions didn't put him off, and that is actually one of the collections that his talk will be drawing upon today. Chris will be speaking for about 45 minutes. So now, without further ado, I will hand you over to Chris. Hello. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Um, so, the cholera outbreak of 1848 and 1849 placed the deadly consequences of England's unchecked and badly planned urbanisation and industrialisation in stark relief. William Farr, who wrote the report to the Registrar General on the outbreak after the fact, said it, that it was as if, and I quote, a foreign army had landed on the coast of England, seized all the seaports, sent detachments over the surrounding districts, ravaged the population through the summer, after harvest destroyed more than 1,000 lives a day for several days in succession, and in the year it held possession of the country, slain 53,293 men, women and children. Faced with the undeniably filthy condition of England's many neglected towns, replete with houses that were described by one Yorkshire official as, and I quote, mere pig holes not fit for human beings, and the fearful spectre of cholera, it's a shock disease which had the ability apparently to reduce a 29-year-old Staffordshire woman who was said to have a remarkably vigorous constitution to death in but a few hours. It was acknowledged in Parliament, uh, and I quote this from Viscount Morpeth, that some measure for promoting the public health was imperatively requisite. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Basically various cholera outbreaks in England and Wales, the steps that were taken by the government to try and stem this tide of death and destruction, which was wrought on England and Wales, sort of diseased, filthy communities. Much of this talk, as Katie said, is going to cover sort of the cholera and public health crises in mid-Victorian period, examining the work and the records here at the National Archives of the General Board of Health and its successor organisation, the Local Government Act Office, which you'll find in the record series MH13. Within these records, there are 271 volumes of correspondence between the General Board, local boards of health throughout the country, hundreds of them, and other officials, organisations and individuals about public health, local government, environmental health. These have recently been finished cataloguing in a Wellcome Trust funded project, which I had the honour of being a cataloguer on in its early days, and have managed to cling on to a job here since. And it's gone from having basically 271 volumes which are described by the place that it relates to and a very broad date range to now we have 89,000, over 89,000, individual cataloguing entries describing each item of correspondence within the collection. It's incredibly rich and allows a sort of very in-depth study of the dynamics of public health and local government in that period. But first we'll need some background uh, to how we get to 1848, how we get to the work of the General Board of Health. So here's what we're going to cover today. I thought we'd start with a refresher. Um, fortunately, Britain is not a country which is often visited by cholera or typhus anymore, so we might need some clarification of what it is and what the effects of it are. 
Uh, then we're going to talk about the first cholera epidemic in Britain and, and the British Isles and Ireland, uh, the 1831 to 1832 outbreak. But then we're going to move on to the work of the Central Board of Health, which was established to deal with this by government. Talk about the inter, sort of what I refer to as the sanitary interregnum. So the period between 1832 and 1848 where there is no central government agency dealing with this and the work of things like the Health of Town Associations. Then we'll move on to uh, my favourite bit, which is the Public Health Act 1848 and the work of the General Board of Health and some of the dynamics of how sanitary reform plays out on the ground. And then we'll talk about the legacy of it. One thing I probably should say is um, I'm going to give a couple of descriptions of the sort of effects of cholera, which are not pleasant. So uh, if you're sort of not of a strong constitution, just a warning for you now. I mean, it's nothing too bad, but I thought I should t warn everybody. Because what is cholera and what is typhus? It's not something I was in super aware of. It was something that I was aware of happened elsewhere in the world before I came, came starting to work here. I suppose it's a privileged position. It's something that happens in other countries. But of course, the past, as we know, is another country. So I thought I'd clarify it. Cholera. Uh, to take the World Health Organization's definition, cholera is an infection of the small intestine which is caused by some strains of the bacterium Vibrio cholerae, which I've probably mispronounced. Symptoms range from none to mild to very, very severe. It is spread predominantly through unsafe water and unsafe food, which has been contaminated, and this is the weird part, the bad part really, with human feces containing the bacteria. Humans are the only animal affected, and cholera can live suspended in water or in feces for about 10 days in most cases. Typhus, meanwhile, which I will talk about less, but is a continuous sort of, sort of taking the lives of people in England at this period, is a disease characterised by, by a serious and often fatal fever. It is spread by the human body louse, uh, sort of blood-to-blood -blood tra transmission, similar to uh, uh, malaria through mosquitoes, I suppose. Lice, and therefore typhus, thrive in dirt. But what are the symptoms of cholera, particularly in Britain? Records from the National Archives provide us with um, some pretty gruesome descriptions of it. I'm going to give an account here of the death of a man called Henry Sibbeth. Uh, he is a 39-year-old sailor. He died in Gateshead in 1832, and his symptoms were described by a local surgeon, Simon Bullen. Sibbeth had no prior symptoms, according to Bullen, and he died in 10 hours after the Bethlehem Kingdom. And uh, this is how it's described. At 2 o'clock on the 12th of January, he became attacked with a sudden purging and an extreme coldness. A surgeon attended him at 9 in the morning. The eyes were then sunken. The countenance had assumed a deathly character and was changed to a blue colour. The pulse could scarcely be felt. It was 70 in number. The tongue was cold. The extremities cramped and he had considerable pain in the epigastric region. He died at 12 o'clock the same morning, retaining his senses to the last. This was a marked case of cholera. No essential symptom of the disease was wanting. Uh, and these symptoms are consistent with the ones described uh, on the World Health Organization's fact sheet for cholera now. So we can be relatively certain that this is a correct historical di diagnosis by uh, Bullen. And Sibber's death was one of many, many, many thousands in the 1831 to 1832 British and Irish cholera epidemic. For those of you who don't know, um, it's worth clarifying what this is. So uh, there have been seven or eight global pandemics of cholera. The last global pandemic was in the 1970s, and they last a long time. So the second pandemic, which this is part of, lasts 1829 to 1837. I think the next one kicks off in 1840. It was a bad time. This one originates in the Ganges Delta in the Indian subcontinent and spreads quite quickly across the world. It's where we get the idea of king cholera. It lays waste to armies, lays waste to nations. Uh, and that's, again, referring back to the sort of metaphor used by uh, William Farr in his report. 
This is the first instance of cholera in the British Isles, and it arrives in 1831 in uh, Sunderland, and it's believed that it arrived uh, via infected sailors who had come on a ship from the Baltic. And it continues through to the summer of 1832. The official ending of the outbreak is given to be May 1832, but we know cholera deficit continue. And around 52,000 people die in that outbreak, which is similar to the 1848-1849 outbreak. So what does the government do? It sets up a board of health that had been one formed in, 18, in 1806 to deal with an outbreak of fever, Malta, or Gibraltar, I can't remember. So it sets up a board of health, which is through the offices of the Privy Council, uh, sort of, you know, the sort of central office of the sort of crown. And it's initially established as a consultative board before cholera arrives in England in, in June 1831. It's basically meant to keep tabs on cholera outbreaks in, the Rus in Russia and the Baltic. As a report from their mission to Russia, they sent physicians to observe cholera symptoms and outbreaks in the way they were dealt with in Russia and compiled a large report which they then distributed amongst medical authorities and local government and government departments. Then in October 1831, when cholera arrived in Britain, the board published uh, model sanitary regulations in the London Gazette. It also at this point recommended, and I quote, that in every town and village there should be established a local board of health starting with the coast, to consist of magistrates, clergymen, two or more physicians, and three or more of the principal inhabitants. So basically some doctors and a rotary club, that's probably the best way of explaining it. The local boards, particularly the physicians, were to provide the central board with details of any cholera cases they encountered in their area, and what treatments they adopted, and how these sort of panned out, whether people died or whether they recovered. So we have a list here at the National Archives, you can see in the middle of the slide here, of all the boards of health established in England and Wales and Scotland, in November 1831, the crisis deepens and the consultative board is officially constitu constituted as the central board of health. It's basically a more official version of it is, but it continues the same similar kind of work, distributing information, bringing information, trying to develop best practice and encouraging local authorities to take measures to try and prevent cholera. In 1832, Parliament, in desperation, passes the Prevention of Cholera Act. It's a temporary act. It widens the central board's powers. It allows it to pass regulations on sanitation and internment of victims of cholera by order of council. It effectively can make law by decree. And it allows them to use these regulations to allow magistrates to fine people locally who breach them. But predominantly it remains an organisation which is there to basically gather and then disseminate information about how to deal with cholera. There is a, the Central Board published a report every day of the cholera cases in, in, in England and Wales and that was available for people to look at. There, it met every day in uh, the Privy Council office. Those are its minutes, and they're receiving there the fact that they have uh, had reports of further cholera cases in March 1832 from Sunderland, and they sort of order some action to be taken. And there on the right, we have uh, one of the circulars they would send out. This was distributed to medical men throughout the country. They were requested if they treated a cholera victim to uh, basically say what they'd done and how it had managed to reduce various symptoms. But this medical advice they were receiving from physicians and... Uh, you know, distributing themselves. Was it sound? I would probably say basically no, which we'll talk about a little bit now. So for those of you who, who don't know, I'm sure many of you do, in the 19th century, um, the dominant theory of disease transmission is what's referred to as the miasma theory. So basically, this postulates that diseases are caused by the presence in the air of a miasma, which is a poisonous vapour in which suspended particles of decaying animal and vegetable matter basically are present, and it's characterised by a foul smell. The theory originates in uh, medieval times. It's basically sort of a growth out of Aristotelian physics and chemistry. Uh, and it endures for centuries. Indeed, it remains dominant in this country, certainly until about the 1880s. It's only start the tide starts to be turned towards the germ theory. There's also a contagion theory which involves you 
being contracting disease via touch, which is used to sort of victimise sex workers in the latter part of the 19th century, but the miasma remains dominant. And this is interesting, because I imagine a lot of you who have come here are interested in cholera. We've all heard of John Snow, of the uh, Broadway, Broad Street cholera outbreak, the man who uh, basically develops the germ theory, is celebrated for it by conducting a study of an outbreak in Soho in 1854 of cholera. And through his investigation, he basically comes to the conclusion that the cause of transmission is bacteria in water from the communal water pump, which has been affected by a near, nearby cesspool. But if we look at the records of the General Board of Health, which is the you know, main central government public health body in this period in 1854, there's no mention of Snow. We have no letters from him, we have no mention of his work. And that's because he's dismissed. The official report on the outbreak says, no, it's definitely a miasma. And it's not for years that he's recognised as the figure that he was. Now, miasma theory reigns supreme. And we can get an understanding of how a, this erroneous theory is sort of borne out and then carried into treatment by some of the bizarre medical literature which is sent to the government during the 1831 and 1832 outbreak. It's really sort of like a, just a pie of quacks. A tr cholera treatment recommended by Dr R Morris, which is forwarded by Dr Barnes to the Home Office in 1831. In his letter, he credits the cure's efficiency in treating both the cholera asiatica and what's referred to as the pestilential jungle fever, which I believe is probably malaria. Malaria itself is an interesting thing if we talk about the miasma because it is a portmanteau of two Italian words, which is mala for bad and aria for air. So you can see how they thought it was transmitted before we discover mosquitoes and the plasmodium para parasite. Now, this treatment is, is, is fun in itself. It's a proposed five-step solution, but I'll, I'll read through them. So first you have the hoop bath, which is basically like a DIY steam room in your living room. You get some hoops, you put paper between them and the put a bowl of water and you just sit in the steam. Apparently it's very relaxing. Then we have the emetic, which is effectively a solution to make you vomit copiously for about four hours. This is a preventative treatment, by the way. Not a, you're meant to do this every day. Now, after the emetic, you go to bed for a little while, and then you're followed by uh, what's referred to as the aperient, which is a laxative. So yeah, you get up, obviously. And then afterwards, you get a bit of a treat, which is the, uh, what's referred to as the stimulant mixture, which is basically just brandy and sugar and a bit of water. Well, you would need it, wouldn't you? And then after that, you can relax because um, you basically have the foot bath, which is, if anybody has a babbleless foot bath at home, it's the same thing. You're using salts, you stick your feet in it, it's relaxing. So apparently, if you follow all of those steps of the letter, you have no cause to fear an attack of cholera, which you will see. Although the doctors claim to have experience of treating cases in Norway and elsewhere with great success. But what is interesting about this pamphlet and the letter before it, it gives a detailed explanation of what pestilential jungle fever and cholera is which shows us the sort of language and scientific assumptions, erroneous scientific assumptions, that underpin the miasma theory of disease transmission. The pamphlet describes cholera as one of the many, and I quote, mucoirritant diseases. So the idea is that the, the malaria, the bad air, the miasma, causes the infection in the respiratory system first for its inhalation, and then acts in the rest of the body. And this makes sense to them, because how else could you contract a disease other than breathing in air? And it says it's caused by the, and I quote, the inhalation of the surrounding anime and atmospheric azoma born of decomposing vegetable matter. I've looked up both of those odd words in sort of contemporary medical dictionaries, and I'm not quite sure what they mean. Anime is similar to a sort of motivating spirit in Jungian philosophy, but I, you know, Jung wasn't alive then, so I doubt it's that. So Miasma Fury also underpins another letter retrieved by the Home Office in this period from uh, Thomas Calley, who's a surgeon from Devon. He writes in early 1832, his solution to save London from cholera was to clear the air by having, and I quote, large pieces of ordnance fire uh, packets of gunpowder above every principal street. This, Callie says, would produce a general purification of the atmosphere and fill the element with vital air. Furthermore, 
he recommends on a domestic basis that the population should be distributed with small pastels of gunpowder, which they can ignite inside their homes. This is his reasoning, and I quote, Every man knows who has been in the habit of shooting that not only his clothes are impregnated with the gas, but that it passes through every channel in his body. And my opinion is that it offers as good a preventative against contagion as anything yet known. An infant may inhale it. I mean, these are entertaining examples, no doubt, and that's why I've picked them, and they, they are good, but they're not outliers in their understanding of how disease is transmitted. The treatments are a bit zany, but effectively, this is sort of the pinnacle of medical knowledge to a certain extent. They're just sort of freewheeling. The main pre pre prescription to people who actually have cholera is just to give them loads of laudanum. That's opium, which yeah, sort of works. However, what is interesting about this period is the central board through its investigative work comes to a determination, if not a complete understanding, that environmental factors do play a large part in the transmission of cholera and other diseases similar to it. And this is from their 1831 regulations published in the Gazette. The infection has been most virulent and has spread more rapidly and extensively in the districts of towns where the streets are narrow and the population crowded, where there is little or no attention being paid to the cleanliness or ventilation. So here is a recognition that the efforts must be made in the field of what we would probably now term environmental or public health. So I think at this point, you know, we might be surprised that there seems to be a sort of 16-year gap between the Central Board of Health being shut down in sort of early 18, spring 1832 and then the establishment of the General Board of Health in 1848. Because, you know, hadn't the government and the ruling class sort of seen the destruction wrought by cholera and realised it could visit them as well as the poor and vowed to make Britain more sanitary? Well, it goes away, and then they start thinking about money again. I think that's the main thing. It's, it's quite well summed up by uh, Frederick Ingalls in his uh, 1844, The Condition of the Working Class in England. He remarks, When cholera was approaching, a universal terror seized the bourgeoisie. As a remote result, they remembered the unwholesome dwellings of the poor. But then he notes only the worst nooks, as he calls them, were cleansed. Everything else left as before. And as the immediate danger passed, the old filthy condition was naturally restored in a couple of months. Enthusiasm for sanitary reform fades with the fear. And also in this period, we have a considerable number of legal, administrative, and indeed philosophical blockages to the kind of reform needed to deal with these issues. Law in early and mid-Victorian Britain, and certainly to the late Victorian period, is predominantly carried out on the principle that although Parliament, the sovereign body, makes the law, its administration and actual delivery should be carried out by local authorities and the principle of self-government. The legislation to deal with cholera, typhus and environmental problems was not there. Some local authorities had some minimal powers to deal with nuisances, as they'd call them, or sort of piles of filth, effectively. Some places had private acts of Parliament to do improvement works. But otherwise, it was for the old parish vestry, a very ancient form of government, to deal with things. They didn't have the administrative, legal, or sort of financial basis to do any of the things that needed to be done in this rapidly expanding, urbanising country. And that's why in 1832, the Cholera Prevention Act has to be passed to allow the Privy Council to make law by decree to actually do these things that otherwise weren't legally possible for local authorities. One man in particular sought to remedy this issue, and that's Edwin Chadwick, it's in the 1860s. It's not many photos of him from this period. Chadwick is a controversial figure, architect of the new poor law, very much hated throughout the country by a lot of people. He believes in a centralised state, and that being, that's the necessary uh, remedy to the social ills at Britain. And this put him at odds to the philosophical notions of English self-government that were popular at this time. Lord John Russell, uh, Prime Minister in this period, is said to have likened Chadwick to, um, a, quote, a Prussian minister, which is not a favourable comparison in England at that time. Chadwick believed the solution to the public health crisis was as follows... All towns 
were to have a system of egg-shaped sewer pipes, you can see here on the, on the left, is an inverted egg. The idea is that the water comes over the top and it removes blockages so they don't get blocked as many sewages did. And that they would be supplied by fresh water to keep them clear and flowing. That would also supply drinking water to the town, which is clean. It would be come from a distance. The sewage would then be transported to the rural part of the area where it would be used as fertiliser. Chadwick referred to it as liquid gold. And him and his followers viewed this, and I quote, as the most important sanitary improvement. Chadwick published a large-scale uh, sanitary investigation in 1842, which was a bestseller. And in 1843, Parliament uh, appoints him to an investigative commission, the Health of Towns Commission. His allies also founded the Health of Towns Association to support and propagate his ideas. And eventually, in 1847, we get the fruition, the first fruition of, of his labours, which is the 1847 Health of Towns Bill. This would have created a, a board in Chadwick's vision which would have allowed them to summarily implement his blueprint for sanitation in England, sort of, you know, forcing it upon communities. But the bill was met with antipathy by Parliament, the press, and significant sections of the public. It was too centralising. One MP declared the bill to be, and I quote, disgusting, even to the promoters of sanitary legislation, as it was so count contrary to the philosophy of how government would work. It was only in 1848, as the cholera approached um, across Europe towards England and Wales, and what Engels called the universal terror once again became the dominant thing in the country, that the proper public health legislation, well, some form of proper, proper public health legislation was passed, and that was the Public Health Act, 1848. As I said above, um, cholera returns to Britain in 1848, and then throughout 1849. Over the course of the next year, it kills around 53,000 people. It also travels to Ireland, where it kills tens of thousands of people who have already suffered and survived the, the, the terrible, terrible consequences of the Great Famine. And there are two further major, major visitations of cholera in the period we're discussing today. And that is the 1853 to 1854 Broad Street outbreak, where over 10,000, uh, well, in London, a part of that, over 10,000 people died. And there's a smaller localised outbreak in 1866 in the East End. But what 1848 does is move... Parliament to pass some sanitary legislation. On the 31st of August 1848, they passed the Public Health Act and they set up the General Board of Health and allowed a formation of local boards of health again. The General Board of Health was renamed the Local Government Act Office in 1858, but carries on the same work. But this is still an exercise in the politics of the possible. Chadwick's vision of a strong central agency putting sort of his blueprint for sanitation in England is, is not realised. The 1848 Act and the General Board are watered-down versions of their failed 1847 attempts. So, because although the General Board has the, has the, technically has the ability to compulsorily adopt uh, the Public Health Act in a particular district or community, if the death rate exceeds 23 dead in every thousand living in a year, I've yet to find a record of this actually happening, even though there are countless communities where the death rate does ex exceed that. Acts are only adopted after the ratepayers in the community, the people who pay effectively, you know, the council taxes, we'd call it now, I suppose, petition for it. Subsequent to the petition, one of the general boards of health superintendent inspectors, who are engineers and interest in sort of sanitation and sewerage, are sent to make an inquiry into the district's sanitary state and to recommend whether the act should be adopted there. If you look at a place like Chatham, where the main receptacle for sewage is something which is called the middle ditch, which is described as follows, a mass of filth for which mephitic bubbles are constantly arising, if you think of this being the norm in the country, which it broadly is, it's unsurprising to hear that they generally, after the inquiry, recommend that the Act should be adopted immediately. The Act provides a local board of health once it's adopted with a wide range of powers, the construction of sewers and the disposal of their content, the provision of a water supply, the abatement of nuisances such as overflowing privies and cesspools on private property, 
the making of new streets to uh, widen them or clear a slum housing, and the power to make further regulations to regulate building and so on through local bylaws. They are required to appoint a clerk, as well as a, as a surveyor and an inspector of nuisances. The latter two officers acting as sort of local boards like medical police, I suppose, is a way of terming it. They inspect newly constructed drains and reported nuisances, and they can civilly prosecute people who break the regulations of the local board. The General Board of Health, however, is comparatively powerless in this situation. It basically, you know, mediates between disputes between local residents and local boards of health to a certain extent, but can't really do much. And it can sanction or dismiss a local board's application to mortgage its future rates in order to pay for sewerage or other improvements. But it can do little else, little influence, really. And indeed, that's the Act's central provision, to borrowing of funds mortgaging the rates to build a modern sewerage system. Chadwick had envisioned this. It supplied with water to carry the waste out of the district. Coupled with the local board's powers to remove nuisances and prohibit their return, this would do much to remo remove the threat of disease in a community. You know, the miasma theory still reigns supreme at this point, you have to remember. One Kent medical officer uh, is heard to say at an, an inquest, the cholera is in the air. However, despite this, the solution was fundamentally sound. As the North Kent Spectator newspaper remarked in 1866, Cesspools near Wales renders them, and I quote, a diluted solution of grossness by percolation of filth. The Public Health Act allowed for such uh, woes to be remedied. Indeed, the Act's permissive nature is one of its strengths. It allows communities with ineffectual sanitary measures, which uh, only allowed them to remove filth but not deal with its causes, to adopt legislation that provided for all manner of sort of municipal improvements. And the correspondent to the General Board of Health, you know, relates this. Petitioners in Bailden from Yorkshire called for the act, act adoption because they said the legislation in place there was just no use for doing what they needed to do. And indeed, we can see in the, what I'm calling the success in the city and elsewhere, the pick-and-mix nature of the Act allows for communities with very different needs to tailor its provisions to their requirements. Alberson and Bolton, which is a tiny place, I think, in Yorkshire, adopts the Act because they have a nuisance ditch in their town. They make it a covered sewer, which is flushed by water, and then after that, they just they use the powers to cleanse their district occasionally. It's a very small place. They don't need any more. If you look at a place like Bradford, which is the fastest-growing city in the first half of the 19th century, they adopt the Public Health Act under the auspices of the local council, and they use it to their full extent. In 1853, having inspected the cellar dwellings and found them overcrowded, they used the powers of the Act to prohibit their occupation. Multiple inspectors of nuisances are appointed for the city to better sort of keep a watch and sort of provide a service to the population. They carry out an extensive programme of public works to improve the sanitary and general state of their district. Land is bought to receive refuse, a landfill effectively. Land is purchased in a compulsory fashion to affect street improvements. Water and sewage works, although they're delayed by legal challenges, when they come in they are extensive. Uh, these are very modern ideas of local government, and they're very radical for the sort of mid-19th century. We've come to expect them now. But this is what the Public Health Act allows. It allows communities to remake their built environment on a fairly grand scale, relatively easy. And there's other examples as well. And for instance, in the 1860s, Blackpool Local Board borrows £50,000, a vast amount of money, to construct the promenade, which becomes famous for the town. And places like Buxton and other resorts also use the powers under the Local Government Act uh, and Public Health Act to improve their communities and make them popular holiday destinations. In Bilston and Staffordshire, a free public library is established using the powers of the Act. When it's utilised properly, it can not just deal with sanitary problems, but also, you know, sort of fundamentally make places a nicer place to live for their residents. However, though, that is not always the case. 
not everyone uses it right, and also it's designed for large towns like Bradford and doesn't really work else in sort of towns, rural towns and sort of larger villages where actually sanitary reform is often most needed. So it's not explicitly designed for these smaller places like Chilvers Cotton and Nuneaton in, uh, in Warwickshire near Coventry. Indeed, George Clark, who writes to the General Board of Health in 1848 from uh, Nuneaton, he describes these sort of peripheral communities on the edge of sort of larger towns and cities as uh, straggling village towns in the most wretched condition as regards health and cleanliness of a type of so many others in this country in which the old village government is quite inadequate to the wants of the rising town and in which, in consequence, things are done expensively and very badly. Clark's description is a good summation of problems facing a, a lot of these types of communities throughout England and Wales. The Public Health Act is not designed for them. In fact, when the Neaton adopts the local government of the Public Health Act in 1850, they write to the General Board asking for advice on how they should make their bylaws and are informed that the bylaws, the model bylaws set out by the General Board of Health are designed for cities and that, and I quote, in rural districts they must be modified with ref references to the circumstances of each locality which can only be appreciated on the spot. So effectively saying, you're on your own, we don't know how this works in the country. But these aren't the only hindrances to effective public health in what I like to call the semi-rural, semi-industrialised periphery. The Act's permissive nature and the General Board's lack of power left the implementation of this to local boards who are elected by ratepayers. And the franchise for elections to these local boards is done, you can have a greater share of the vote than your neighbour because you have a more expensive property. So effectively you get local boards which are made up generally of people who aren't engineers, they aren't doctors and they're not really local politicians. They are predominantly landed gentlemen, farmers and some professionals. And this brings us two major problems in that people who don't want the rates to go up so flat out refuse to do anything and also people who are sort of complacently incompetent to a dangerous level. And I will discuss some of those now. So Cliverow in Lancashire gives us an excellent example of this, the kind of people who basically want to adopt the Public Health Act when the cholera is around, but then as soon as it goes away, realise that it might cost them some money, so back away from it. A sort of massive volt fast. Cliverow is, is filthy. It's unhealthy without proper drainage, and many dwellings that are described by a local official as unfit for human habitation. In 1849, there were 17 cholera deaths in five days, and the town council admitted that they needed the Public Health Act to try and deal with it. They didn't have the necessary means to deal with it. They sent them a petition asking for it. However, a couple of weeks later, the General Board received another petition from many of the people who signed the former one, saying um, they want their names removed because, and I quote, they had not the least idea of the enormous expense it would incur. So cholera is a shock disease, and shocks diminish. Again, we see it. Rates, once again, become the most sort of pressing form of anxiety. Cliverow does come underneath the Public Health Act, but the problems with the opposition to it continue, and continue to render it effectively a dead letter for years. Candidates are elected to the local board on the campaign promise of doing nothing. We have meetings like uh, the one advertised here where they talk about centralisation and its worst terrors and the tyranny of the Public Health Act. The members of the board petition the government saying that they want the cessation and repeal of the Public Health Act in Cliverow. They're told that they can't, it's not legal, so they say, OK, well, we're going to let the act slumber, we'll do nothing. Furthermore, they dismiss the claims that Cliverow's water is polluted by sewage. They say that the people who say that are pseudo-chemists, and they blame the incredibly high death rate in the town on variously intemperance, falls and drowning. There's no evidence to suggest this. They also claim that the rates being high will kill more people than cholera. They have a surveyor who is an appointed official and he is pro-reform and keeps writing to the General Board of Health. They don't like him, so they try and dismiss him. They can only dismiss him with the General Board of Health sanction. The General Board of Health refuses. 
what the General Board of Health don't control is his salary. So what they do is they revise the surveyor's salary from £120 per year to 25 shillings. He's very unhappy. And despite the General Board of Health warning that there will be evil consequences, they do nothing. The General Board of Health tries to get a legal order, but they're told by the government it won't work. And it carries on for about a decade. Nothing is done. Nothing is done. But the General Board of Health have no power to compel them to do anything, so they, have, they can't, can't sort it out. We also have cases of incompetence, uh, particularly this example here from, from Epsom. So uh, Epsom, the Epsom Local Board were reluctant to go to the expense of appointing a proper engineer to design their sewer system. So they have a competition. You can see the advertisement for it. A premium of £50 paid to the best designer of a sewerage system to avoid paying an engineer the proper wage for this. When they send the winners to the General Board of Health, which unfortunately don't survive, uh, the General Board of Health come back to them saying, we've told you of the fruitlessness of this scheme, that all of these plans are absolutely terrible. And this amateurism and cost-cutting is rife amongst local boards in this period, uh, and it often delays any sanitary amendments, let alone effective ones. Chatham's local board, we discussed earlier, the middle ditch, that, that puddle of filth for which bubbles are continuously arising, they're a real double-edged sword of people who don't like the expense of the Public Health Act and are also just dangerously incompetent. For instance, they plan to remedy the problem of the middle ditch by cutting a channel from it to the sea because it's, less, it's cheaper than a sewer and they, they, they say, well, the tide will just flush it out. And then the inspector goes, yes, but if there's a storm, you're just going to spread human feces, human waste across the town. And so, you know, the Chatham board don't agree with that, but, you know. And you just have these people who are elected with no knowledge whatsoever to do nothing. But I'm painting a very negative picture of the impact of this. And as we come to the end, I suppose... The General Board of Health, generally in historiography, has got a bad billing, but actually now this correspondence has been opened up, we can see more of how it actually works, and we can start to appreciate that it wasn't a complete failure. The results of the Public Health Act are mixed, descending on the, depending on the reception they receive from the locality and the capabilities of those charged with the administration of the legislation. The correspondence MH13 demonstrates that a capable and willing community could use the powers within the legislation to recast their environment in a much healthier form for the period. But where the Act is met by incompetence or opposition, the limited powers given to the central government often render it inert, as the proactive spirit sort of stopped. Nuisances continue to abound in those towns. Conditions remain filthy, death rates remain high, nothing is done. Furthermore, for every place that did adopt the Act, there are many where petitions in favour of it were either defeated by uh, local vestries or never presented at all. Uh, in 1865 and 1866, the government passes the Sanitary and uh, Sewage Utilisation Acts, which finally gives some power to force communities to compulsorily uh, drain their districts. And we start to get correspondence then from places that want the act, those acts to be forced upon a community because they haven't managed to get any sewers in place for the vestry. And they tell a real tale of woe. Wilsdon, just up the road, write to the board in 1868 requesting that the vestry be compelled to put a sewer in through this piece of legislation because basically they've been trying to pass some sanitary legislation for years for the vestry but half of the parish is under the uh, sewerage of the Metropolitan Board of Works so their houses have sewers and so they turn up en masse to every meeting of the vestry to ensure that the petition for the rest of the district to be sewered is defeated because they'd have to pay the rates for it otherwise. So you have half a parish with no sewers, absolutely filthy and the other half with lovely sewers provided by Mr Basiljet. And that's sort of the kind of thing you deal with here. But what I would say is basically there is a role to the General Board of Health in propagating this idea of how to deal with a sanitary crisis. They have superintendent inspectors who are continuously going around the country investigating sanitary problems, reporting on them, publishing their results. And they have a network of local officials who, you know, do try and implement this stuff. Clerks, surveyors, medical officers of health, 
inspectors of nuisances who learn through doing of how to sort of refine these regulations and this legislation to better deal with the, with the sort of circumstances on the ground. And although it's considered to be a failure, we see in 1875, well, actually, the superintendent and inspectors become the sort of superstars of this. They are, in the 1840s, mostly railway engineers. Then by the 18, 1871, when the General Board of Health is wound into the local government board, they are probably the most experienced sanitary engineers in the country. Robert Rawlinson, who is one of the more senior inspectors, in 1870, he goes to Altrincham in Lancashire, and he encounters an inquiry about a sewerage system, a Reverend Brearley, a local, a local vicar, who's protesting against the utility of and the need for this sewage system. And he questions Rawlinson's recommendations. And Rawlinson dismisses the Reverend quite, quite strongly. He says that while Brearley, and I quote, might lecture to his parishioners, he had no right to come and lecture him, Rawlinson, who for 15 years had studied the question of sewage, which is an odd thing to spend 15 years doing, but he gains experience. And so I would contend there's a sort of argument I would like to make that basically the General Board helps to sort of propagate this idea that some basic need to, for local government to, like, as a necessity and as a right to people, provide some basic form of public health. The work the General Board of Health does throughout the country with varying degrees of success in this period allows this to become an accepted notion in culture and society in Britain. Indeed, in 1875, four years after the General Board of Health was wound into the local government board, the newly elected Conservative government under Disraeli passed the Public Health Act 1875, which finally makes compulsory many of the 1848 Act's provisions, the creation and repair of sewers and water supply and the regulation and inspection of the built environment. Disraeli gets quite a lot of stick when he's propagating this act in 1874, when he's trying to get it through Parliament. He goes to a meeting in Manchester and he gets heckled. And uh, he replies to his naysayers in Latin, because it's the 1870s, and he says, Sanitas, sanitatum, omnia sanitas, health above everything. And this is the mantra of the 1840s uh, Health of Town Associations, who were derided as centralisers, spoke by the Conservative Prime Minister of Britain only 30 years later. You can see the change in culture that the, the work done in this period brings about. Now, part of this culture change, I would suggest, is, is, can be sort of laid at the door of Charles Dickens. Uh, Dickens is, uh, is closely connected to the General Board of Health. Henry Austin, who is the secretary to the board until 1852, and then its chief inspector, is married to uh, Dickens' sister, Letitia. And Dickens' younger brother, Alfred, is also an inspector at the General Board of Health until he dies of pleurisy in 1860. Also, Tom Taylor, who is the secretary after Austin to the General Board of Health, as well as being probably Britain's most successful playwright at this point, assistant editor to Punch, the art critic for The Times, very good rower, and he was also a judge for a bit. Very interesting man. He adapts Dickens' uh, A Tale of Two Cities for stage, and they correspond with each other as friends. And we can see the effect of the work of the General Board of Health on Dickens' work and the way he propagates ideas about sanitary reform in his work. If you read Hard Times, the descriptions of working-class dwellings and how bad they are, reads as if a superintendent and respect inspector's report on sanitary conditions in a town in Northern England. In 1857, Household Worlds, Dickens' very popular magazine, publishes in full a report written by his brother on the terrible sanitary conditions in Canning Town. It receives wide circulation and does lead quite quickly to improvements in that area of London. In the draft preface to uh, the 1850 edition of Oliver Twist, which is preserved in manuscript form at the British Library, Dickens says that he is convinced, and I quote, that nothing effectual can be done for the elevation of the poor in England until their dwelling places are made decent, clean and wholesome. Sanitary reform must precede all other social reforms. And I think it's fair to say that Dickens changed his perspective here. He was convinced throughout this period 
by the work of the Health and Towns Association and subsequently by the work of the General Board of Health, who are the people who sort of, through their active investigation and administrative work to try and deal with these crises, change the way we think about public health in this country and sort of change how we do environmental health now and remake local government. And I think we should recognise how the correspondence we have here relates to that story and how important it was. That's the end. I thought I'd finish on Dickens because everybody loves him. Thank you very much and, um, yeah, thank you. This talk is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.